Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim. I know you have been so busy this week at the Monkey Cage Training Workshop. Are there any new and inspirational projects or research there that you wanted to share with us? Yes, actually, we have some great new contributors who are going to be writing for us, a lot of them working on poverty and inequality and global health. We also have a Malagasy scholar, Velomahanina Razamaka Haravo, who came all the way from Europe to join us here in San Diego, and she's working on a post on inequality and social conflict in Madagascar that I think will be really informative for Monkey Cage readers and, of course, Ufahamu Africa listeners. Now, talking about the Monkey Cage, we've had a lot of great coverage on what's been happening in Sudan in the last two weeks. We had a piece by sociologist Jean-Baptiste Galapin about the escalation of the protests right before President Bashir left office. Then we had an excellent explainer about all the events that transpired up to and just after Bashir's being ousted by the military by Mai Hassan and Ahmed Kadouda. More recently, coup expert Nanihal Singh wrote about the political instability in Sudan and how it might actually make us hopeful for democratic change. And coming soon, we'll have a piece by Emmanuel Balogun and Anna Mwaba looking at how the African Union has responded to the Sudan uprising and giving us a recent history of AU response to constitutional crises across the continent in the last 10 years. I can't wait to see those. I've I've seen a couple of them certainly coming out already in the monkey cage, and I'll keep my eye out for those upcoming pieces. And they're so informative. And I wanted to also let our listeners know about another kind of newsworthy event. And that is really that tensions are mounting, I think, quite dangerously right now um, between Rwanda and Uganda. So I saw a report that suggested that armies from Rwanda and Uganda are both compiling troops on hilltops kind of along the 100-mile shared border. And it's creating a rather tense standoff between these two really key regional security allies that is threatening the basic project of East African economic integration as well as the question of broader regional security. So the two African countries, interestingly, have had a very kind of close historical link, and each has played a key role in the other's political development. But this is... is actually right now in question and and possibly in peril. So Rwanda recently accused Uganda of providing support and space for anti-Rwandan groups, um, also accused them of arresting Rwandans and of disrupting regional trade. And Uganda has denied all allegations. The anti-Rwanda groups in question are specifically known as the Rwanda National Congress, the RNC, and the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, the FDLR. Both organizations are perceived by Rwandan officials to be dangerously intent on overthrowing the current RPF government and bringing back the ethnic divisions that haunted Rwanda prior to the genocide. Now, for our listeners, as a quick recap of the nature of these historic links, why Uganda and Rwanda have historically been seen as allies, that goes back to the Ugandan uh, government currently led by President Museveni and his national resistance movement, the fact that they gained power in a military campaign between 1980 to 1986, and they were aided in this military campaign by Rwandan refugees who had escaped previous rounds of Tutsi ethnic group persecution. And among those Rwandan refugees was Paul Kagame, who is now president of Rwanda, who joined Museveni 
in ultimately his successful struggle against the government of Milton Abote and Tito Okello uh, from 1980 to 1986. And by providing a refuge for these Tutsi Rwandans, Uganda then enabled those displaced refugees to create what then became the Rwandan Patriotic Front. And Uganda's military assistance and geographic sanctuary was essential for the RPF's military wing to later take over the Rwandan capital and halt the 1994 genocide. So both leaders kind of helped each other militarily come into power. And since then, Rwanda and Uganda have fought together during the first Congo War from 1996 to 97. They fought together against the Rwandan genocide perpetrators who had fled into Zaire, now DRC. And they fought to help overthrow Zairean leader Mobutu Sese Seko. Now, Museveni and Kagame again fought together during the early stages of the Second Congo War from 1998 to 2003, but then ended up turning on each other in 1999 in the fight to take control of the Congolese city, Kisangani, which resulted in nearly 3,000 deaths. So since then, relations have been largely inconsistent, although generally negotiable. However, as of March this year, the tensions have really started to rise, and Rwandan Foreign Minister held a press conference outlining Rwanda's concerns with Uganda. They briefly closed the border and encouraged Rwandans living in Uganda to return immediately. Concerns continue to mount, and the Ugandan government does not appear to be making any amends. Now, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has met with both leaders and may help to mediate between them, but in this current tense situation, regional development and integration is certainly put in jeopardy. All of that is really making me think of a lot of the great work that scholars of um, regional politics and these uh, regional organizations like Emmanuel Balogun and Anna Waba are doing um, on the continent. I, I'd be curious to know what they think about these events. And I actually, just talking about regional politics, I'd like to shift focus to an issue in our own region here in the Americas. I read in the Washington Post earlier this week some great reporting on hundreds of African migrants who are stuck in Mexico trying to get to the U.S., Many of the migrants are asylum seekers fleeing political violence in their home countries, especially Congo and Cameroon, but also Ethiopia and Eritrea. The migrants have been waiting for several weeks to get transit permits or documents that would allow them to travel on to the U.S., where many of them will request asylum. The primary reason why they're stuck in Mexico is because U.S. President Donald Trump has pressured Mexico to stop allowing migrants to transit through the country on their way to the U.S. border. While that's led to Mexican authorities deporting Central Americans back to their home countries, Africans are harder to deport. In a quote in the Washington Post piece, the head of Mexico's immigration agency said about the African countries where these migrants are coming from, these are countries without diplomatic representation here that can help resolve the situation for each nationality. So, you know, there have even been protests. So some of these African migrants have come together to protest uh, the racism that they're experiencing while they're in Mexico uh, by the immigration officials in Mexico that they've been waiting for this documentation for. But people have been waiting for several weeks and uh, and they're still they're just staying in line. And this is just to get the paperwork to then be able get to the to get to the U.S. to then file more paperwork, right, in order for them to seek asylum. Exactly, Kim. Thanks for keeping us updated on that. Those are really such critical developments. I think for our listeners to be aware of the multiple levels of the process of asylum seeking and where those backlogs really lie. 
Um, I also wanted to return to a discussion that we had last week about the Saharan Futures Project. And this week, we returned to the Sahel region for some breaking news coming out of Mali. And that is that Mali's president, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, has accepted the resignation of the country's prime minister, Maiga, and the rest of his government. According to Jeune Afrique, the prime minister, Maiga, resigned on the eve of a no-confidence vote that would have included the majority of the parliament, including both members of the ruling party as well as members of the opposition. One report suggested that President Keita was concerned that some of the ruling party's um, ministers of parliament were switching over to MAGA's party, the ASMA, and that power was shifting towards the prime minister. Also, there are other factors at work. Certainly, the augmenting security crisis, if you remember, has been just under a month since 160 people from a community of Fulani herders were killed by Dogon fighters on March 23rd. And Malians have been putting increasing pressure on their government to address this violence and instability in the country. Another factor is certainly the teacher strikes that have been going on since the beginning of March, and the fact that the opposition themselves never conceded defeat in the presidential election, and protests continue in Bamako to denounce what they see as fraudulent victors. So there are contestations over who the president should be and what the makeup of the government should be in terms of the prime minister and other government officials in general. So in the context of these multiple threats, President Keita announced that a new government will be put in place after consultation with all political forces of the majority and the opposition. Now, Mali's increasing political instability and insecurity are so intimately tied together. I mean, this has been evident since the 2012 Northern Rebellion and the consequent coup just prior to those presidential elections. This is just yet another indicator of the political repercussions of the security context. Thanks, Rachel. Ever since I heard the news, I've been curious to know what you think about what's been happening in Mali. And for our listeners who want to learn more, I recommend listening to a recent BBC Newsday report featuring political scientists at Haverford College, Susanna Wing. Also, as this news was breaking and we were having this monkey cage workshop, Molly Ariati, a political scientist from the University of Georgia who focuses on Francophone Africa and in particular about party competition and coalitions in government. So she's actually going to be writing about this as well. So we'll have some, some more to come on the monkey cage on this. Perfect. We'll post those links certainly to the monkey cage piece on our website, as well as bonus links, ufahamuafrica.com. This week, we feature a conversation with Jeffrey Paller, an assistant professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. He was formerly a fellow at the Earth Institute at Columbia University and a research associate at the Center for Democratic Development in Ghana. He earned his PhD in political science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University. We regularly share pieces we read about in the weekly news bulletin he curates, This Week in Africa. Rachel and I sat down with Jeffrey at the most recent meeting of the African Studies Association in Atlanta in November. We wanted to talk to him about his new book, which was just released this week, titled Democracy in Ghana, Everyday Politics in Urban Africa. Welcome, Jeffrey Pollard, to Ufahamu Africa. We're delighted to have you here to talk about your work. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, perhaps the work of yours I admire and use the most is not a scholarly publication, but is the weekly newsletter that you curate with Phil Dubé called This Week in Africa. Every week, you email subscribers a roundup of a diverse range of news from around the continent. Topics include Africa's rapid urbanization, migration and displacement, African international relations, the week in development, daily life, et cetera, et cetera. 
often you collect a number of pieces about a topic, whether it's an emerging news event like the Anglophone crisis in Cameroon or about an upcoming election in an African country. Can you tell our listeners the story behind why you launched the newsletter and what you initially hoped it would do? Yes. The newsletter developed out of a class at Bates College where I was teaching a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was teaching African politics, and I'd constantly ask my students, have you heard about X? Have you heard about Y? Mm -hmm. And many of the students hadn't heard about some of the current events that were going on in Africa. So every Friday, I would just send out a very simple email to my students with about five to 10 links about what was happening on the continent. And the email kind of became a thing at Bates College. Other professors and students started signing up. And then I had some friends at the State Department who started receiving the email. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of forced to do it every Friday and I had a (laughs) accountability mechanism. And then the summer after that year, Philip Dubé, who's uh, from Zimbabwe, came to me. We were actually sitting in Harlem. I had just started a postdoc at Columbia. And he came to me and said, I want you to take this you know, newsletter big. I want you to professionalize it. And I said, Phil, I got enough going on my plate. And he said, you know, I've sent this to a lot of my friends and uh, colleagues uh, who are studying in the United States, but from the continent. Mm-hmm. And this is their best best way to get news from the continent. Mm. And I said, well, Phil, if this is, you know, something that's so helpful and that, that's very compelling, let's think of some ways to kind of professionalize this and kind of create a bigger thing. And Phil really did a lot of research to think of new platforms and really was kind of inspirational behind the whole thing. So our partnership started and every Friday we send out this newsletter and it's kind of taken off. And each year we you know, gain hundreds of more subscribers. And Mm -hmm. now it's really a big, exciting thing. Phil is now a master's candidate in environmental management at Yale University, and he's been using it in his own studies. And it's become a long-term partnership. And how has it expanded, obviously, from a a small group of students to all different types of audiences? You know, even I know my parents subscribe so they can keep track of where I'm going. So do you feel like you're really reaching new audiences and you know, has it had some unintended consequences? Yeah, it's been a really exciting kind of, I don't want to say grassroots, but I mean, people just kind of have found out about it due to social media, uh, due to the development community, the policy community took an interest, Ufahamu Africa has taken an interest, people in government, and I think it's just kind of spread. People tell their networks, they tell their friends, I'll be at conferences, people come up to me and they say, oh, I get your email each week. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of taken on a life of its own. I've been approached by different outlets, you know, asking me to post it on their websites. And up until this point, we've kind of kept it independent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the kind of fun parts about it is it's just an email. It's an old school, you know, to your inbox. Uh, We're not trying to at that point, that, that that's where it is, and we're, we're, we're proud of it. You should be. Yes. You should be. Now, we also want to congratulate you because Cambridge University Press is publishing your first book, Democracy in Ghana, Everyday Politics in Urban Africa. We're excited to read your book because we think it's an important contribution to the scholarship on democracy in Africa. From the publisher's description, Democracy in Ghana offers novel explanations for good governance and development in poor urban neighborhoods. 
Can you tell our listeners why you wanted to focus on urban neighborhoods, especially given the majority of Africans live in rural areas? Well, it is true that You know, at this point and historically, most Africans have lived in rural neighborhoods. But as Anna Tipayuka, the previous UN Habitat director, said, the future of Africa is urban. Mm -hmm. And by 2030, the estimates suggest that most people will, most Africans will be living in cities. Mm -hmm. And by 2050, 70% of Africans will be living in cities. And the region has the fastest rate of urbanization in the world, so 3.5% growth. So the continent is rapidly urbanizing. People are moving to cities. Small villages are growing into towns, growing into cities. And not much is known about the politics of these places. And from a very early stage, when the since the first time I went to Africa, you know, I'd read about rural poverty and rural villages and, you know, in the development community, a lot about agricultural production. When I was going through the cities, this kind of representation of what life was like, what the politics of these new urban centers was like, was largely missing in the literature. As people move to these spaces, they're becoming incredibly politically important along a few different dimensions. Opposition movements are forming, people are placing new claims on the state, people who've been kind of left out of the political process historically. Mm -hmm. So this gave me an opportunity to explore these issues more in depth and in a comparative framework. So you're saying that people are putting more demands on the state, do you mean things like public service provision or... or, or yeah, what, what's, what's really been interesting to me as I've developed the project is to see communities form in cities and in very different neighborhoods, many of whom are migrant populations who mm-hmm. have kind of this history of marginalization, this mm-hmm. history of feeling kind of left out of the process. Many of the communities that I work with in Ghana are people from the north who you know kind of felt left out of both the colonial project, but also kind of independence, political party movements. And they come to the city and they're much closer to, you know, politicians, much closer to the state. Mm -hmm. And they're able to make demands for public services or Mm -hmm. able to make demands for leadership and representation Mm -hmm. that they never were able to do before. And what's interesting in my project is that some communities have been very effective at Mm -hmm. this, while others have been less so. And that kind of sets the puzzle of the of the book. Why mm-hmm. is it that some poor neighborhoods, many of these neighborhoods are poor, mm-hmm. you know, I started off thinking about these as slum communities because mm-hmm. so many people in Africa and urban Africa today are living in what we would term slum communities. Mm-hmm. I think the estimate is that 62% of all urban dwellers across Africa live in communities with really poor resources, Mm -hmm. insecure land title, and all of it, you know, highly dense neighborhoods. So I'm trying to tell a story of why some of these poor communities are able to overcome some of these challenges. And what's your what's your answer, and how how does that vary in terms of, you know, you've said uh, there are a number of things that urban communities are are making possible that that rural dwellers were not able to do. So how does it vary within the city, and why does it vary vis-a-vis their rural existence? 
Yeah. The story that I tell, I, I focus the kind of positive story on these, uh, what are called, what I call stranger communities. And in Ghana, many of these are called Zongos, and they're a popular type of community across West Africa, where migrants and migrant leaders really came to the city during the colonial period in the 1920s and the 1930s, and struck deals with indigenous landowners, indigenous chiefs, and their followers and their other migrants from their communities up north and from other parts of the country come to the city with them and a whole type of public life emerges. And what's interesting about these neighborhoods is that they're Mm multi-ethnic. They're people who are speaking different languages, but they are able to kind of come together and create this kind of cohesive identity as a migrant. And over time, these neighborhoods establish their own accountability mechanisms, their own leadership structures. And in the face of state power, they're able to come together and demand goods from the state. Another question is, what made you decide to study this in Ghana, as opposed to say, I mean, there are cities in Kenya, South Africa, I mean, there's Morocco, you, you could have studied this most anywhere on the continent, but what was what drew you to Ghana? Ghana is an interesting place because it's a lot of firsts. It was the first kind of country to gain independence, but it was also, you know, one of the first countries to kind of have moved toward authoritarianism and Mm -hmm. many coup d'etats in its Mm -hmm. history. And now it's considered kind of the darling democracy on the continent. It Mm -hmm. has vibrant multi-party systems. And I think it offers a lesson into how democracy can work on the continent. We don't actually have a good sense of how democracy works in Africa, in people's lives, how people actually select leaders to represent themselves, how they get their interests heard. So I really wanted to take a deep dive into what democracy looks like from below. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as you notice, the title of the book is Democracy in Ghana, and it's really trying to push our understanding of, you know, on the surface, we know that Ghana has had this successful two-party system. It's had, you know, three turnovers of power and mm-hmm. its recent democratic configuration. But so much of what I noticed during my research was that what makes it function, what makes it work, is what's happening in people's daily lives. Mm-hmm. It's their ability to kind of keep the peace in their own neighborhoods during mm-hmm. tense elections. Mm-hmm. Is the ability to kind of demand resources in a very kind of patronage, clientelistic environment, but also make that system work for themselves. Mm-hmm. Great. So for listeners interested in following politics or everyday life in Ghana from afar, what resources would you recommend for us to have you know, an even deeper understanding? Yeah, I mean, the best place to learn and kind of hear about what's going on in Ghana are the radio stations. And mm-hmm. you know, what's, what's nice about the radio stations in Ghana is that they also have an online presence and mm-hmm. they kind of link up with some of the newspapers. So there's City FM and they have their uh, cityfmonline.com. Mm-hmm. There's Joy FM. There's moderngana.com, but Mm -hmm. all of these are kind of linked, and you can stream the radio stations online to just get a sense of how people are talking about politics, how they're deliberating about it, what issues matter to people. But you can also read it and read some of the articles about what are the issues of the day. And you mentioned a few of them. Is it not also true, though, that the media in Ghana are, are partisan? 
most things in Ghana are partisan, and this is a really big part of how the democracy functions there. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in we're so focused on ethnicity and religion and other things from an academic perspective in Africa, and mm-hmm. we really need to realize that, at least in Ghana, you know, party matters. Mm-hmm. Party, you know, is a lot of things. It's, uh, you know, most things to a lot of these people, but it overlaps with all of these other categories. And it's, you know, the partisanship is an important part of daily deliberations. So it's good to listen to different types of radio stations. Mm -hmm. It's good to be aware of the narratives and the approaches that these different media outlets are taking in the Mm -hmm. same way that we should understand the difference between MSNBC versus Fox News. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating in so many ways that Ghana is a kind of partisan context that so many of our listeners in the United States can really relate to in terms of the two-party system, the tight contestation, the way in which the media, civil society, you know, public groups become affiliated with their partisan identity. I think it's really an interesting case, and for that reason, really fascinating to look into how that's reflected across urban spaces. Do you notice that certain communities across the city in these informal settlements or, or slum communities reflect partisan divides? Is there a kind of mm-hmm. sorting such as we see in the United States? What was a little bit difficult for me was that many of the neighborhoods that I worked in were of one political party, the NDC party. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my qualitative ethnographic work, I didn't see much variation along those lines. So Mm -hmm. what I was forced to do was kind of think about this more broadly and incorporate a survey into my work where I needed to look at places where we saw some of the informal settlements of the MPP party. But certainly you see this tension between the MPP and NDC along some of the same divides that we see in the United States. You mm-hmm. see, you know, this idea that it's an elite party versus the commoner party mm-hmm. in the same way mm-hmm. that people have these discussions in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much a coastal versus inland, but mm-hmm. you see similar spatial differences that overlap. And it, it's reflected in how people talk and how people experience their politics. Now, as you know, as a, as a listener of the podcast, one of the last questions we like to ask our guests is about what you're reading that you might recommend to some of our listeners. Yeah, I just finished this wonderful book called Monrovia Modern by Danny Hoffman, which was a really interesting combination of photographic essays, architectural theory, and anthropology about the reconstruction of uh, Monrovia. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed that book, and it's it's quite a beautiful book also for your coffee table. Mm-hmm. Another book that I just think everyone should pick up is Everyday Africa. It's mm-hmm. this beautiful collection of Instagram portraits from the continent. Mm-hmm. And they have a wonderful website called Everyday Africa, and you can follow them on Instagram and each day get five to ten different images of what you know life looks like on the continent, all across the continent, different mm-hmm. countries. But the book is this very beautiful coffee table book that has photos from 30 different photographers, as well as short little comments about Mm -hmm. what is going on in these pictures. And I think it provides a different view of Africa than what you read in the New York Times, than what you read in the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, just about just the daily life that people experience. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. 
You can listen to Ufamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website, ufamuafrica.com. Ufamu Africa is a production created by Kimi Dion and currently sponsored by the Program of African Studies and the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University, as well as the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. Kara Stevick, Medill School of Journalism Class of 2019, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama. Safiri Salama.